I'm beginning a new series this morning. This is a four-part sermon series that's a topical series called Legacy. And to explain the purpose of this series, I thought it would be good to review where we have been so far this year. I don't know if you even remember how we kicked off the year. Anybody? Yeah, are the worst. Yeah, Jan- January. Exactly. January 1st whoop, was the first day of the year. No, the first series we did was called Stand Firm, and it was a study through the book of Daniel. We spent about 12 weeks in the book of Daniel, and one of the key ideas that we gleaned from those pages was that we can stand firm because God stands firm. Like God's plans and purposes will never be thwarted. Like God ha- God knows exactly what He's going to do and nothing can stand in His way. And so Daniel goes away into captivity and the book of Daniel tells his story and what he learns in his time in Babylon is that God stands with those who stand firm for Him. And like that's the story of Daniel's life. Over and over and over, he sees the faithfulness of God as he stands firm for Yahweh. And then that series was followed up with a series we called Awakening, uh, where I asked the question, can you live without revival? Like as we look at the world around us, as we look at our church, and maybe as you look at your own heart, can you live without revival? Are you content to just live an average, ho-hum, even nominal Christian life, being a Christian in name only, can you live without revival? Like I said in that series, that I sincerely believe that we are at the very doorstep of either national revival or national judgment. I know which one of those we deserve, but I'm praying for revival. And so we will either undergo revival or we will be called to stand firm as God's remnant in a godless generation. Or maybe like Daniel, we'll get to experience both. Daniel experienced the greatest revival in Israel's history under the leadership of King Josiah. It was formative to his life. And then because of the sin of Israel, they were taken into captivity and he drew on what God had taught him in that revival to stand firm in Babylon. And in that series, I asked these questions. Do you take God seriously? Do you take sin seriously? And do you take obedience seriously? And so to give you an idea of what obedience looks like, we spent our next 10 weeks in a series called Decalogue, a study of God's holy law, His Ten Commandments. And every week you heard these words. I hope you didn't forget them already. Ultimate freedom is found under God's authority. Like ultimate freedom is found under God's authority. As the Creator of all people and all things, God knows how our lives are designed to work best. And so He gives us His law. And a sovereign King over all, He has the right to direct our paths. And as the Redeemer, He has set us free to live as a free people. And so that's a lot of stuff that we've covered already this year, which brings us to our new series. And what I'd like to do with this new series is not hit a pause, but just 
take some time to kind of reflect, to think about what we have already heard, and then apply what we have heard in all of 2023 to one significant arena of our lives, which is our families. Your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, your relationships, your siblings, your friends around you. Like this, I got to tell you, for, for me, this has really been my heart this year, was to uh, get to this series where we could kind of just, once again, think through with one arena in focus. Like what would it look like for me to stand firm like Daniel in my family, with my siblings, for my children, in my marriage? Like what would it look like to experience a spiritual awakening among the Pruitts? Like what would that look like? Like am I satisfied to just be okay or do I want to see God move in my family? And then what would it look like to be men and women within the context of the home who are completely committed to honor God and show Him our love by keeping His law? Like how do you even do this? You see, through the deliverance from slavery for Egypt and the giving of His law, God began a brand new legacy for the people of Israel. In fact, 3,500 years later, everyone in this room is blessed because of what God did then and what He has built from that. That legacy. Through Israel's deliverance, God built a name for Himself. In fact, that's what a legacy, a true and lasting legacy is joining with God in building a name for Himself. Through our deliverance, He wants to do the same for us that He did for Israel. He he is seeking to build a legacy through your life and through your family. Like I just think of Malachi 3 where he rebukes the men of Israel for divorcing their wives. And one of the reasons he gives for rebuking them is he asks the question, like what does God want from your marriages? And he answers it, godly children. That's what God wants to, wants to start and what God wants to do. He wants the world to look on with awe at what He does in marriages and in families that only He can accomplish. Like God does not want our deliverance to stop with us. Like He doesn't want us to be like... Like King Hezekiah, you read in the Old Testament that God announces through the prophet, the King Hezekiah, that judgment is coming and it's going to be bad. Like it's going to be terrible. He tells him that some from his own household would be carried over into Babylon into slavery and serve as eunuchs in in that king's household. And he tells him how awful it's going to be for Jerusalem. And then he tells Hezekiah, but this is not going to happen in your lifetime. And Hezekiah's response isn't deep grief and repentance. It isn't, well, regardless of if it's going to happen in my lifetime or not, this is going to happen to God's people and to my children. There's no grief. There's no tearing of his clothes. There's no sackcloth and ashes. Instead, his response is, okay, cool. Okay, at least it's not going to happen to me. Like that's the 
Like, we don't want to have the Hezekiah syndrome. Like, God doesn't want deliverance to stop with us. He wants to build a legacy, a name for Himself. And so what do we mean by legacy? The definition is right here on the slide. It's a long-lasting impact of specific events, actions, and people. Something that took place in the past, but has made a deep imprint on your soul. It's something that's handed down from one person to another and to another. Like it's distinct from remembrance because you may be forgotten, but your legacy will live on. It will still be felt by your children and their children and their children's children. I mean, think about it this way. How many of you right now, how many, how many of you ever got to meet and know your grandparents? Show of hands. All right. Now keep them up. Keep them up. How many of you got to get to know your great grandparents? How many of y'all got to know your great great grandparents? So for most of us in this room, hear this, you're only about four generations away from being completely forgotten. I mean, that's just the reality. Like They won't even know your name. They may find it in a book or on Ancestry DNA and think, that's a pretty cool name. Maybe we'll use that for a kid or something. But they won't know you. And yet, your legacy, the impact you make, may still be steering their lives and giving them direction. Like, how about this? How many of y'all know Bo Thompson? Maybe a better question. How many of you don't know Bo Thompson? And yet you're sitting here today enjoying the legacy of Bo Thompson. You see, Bo Thompson was our founding pastor. Bo Thompson was the reason I went to Columbia Bible College. He was my friend from like the high school days. One of the first really committed believers I met who encouraged me to go to Columbia where he had gone. He founded this church and now he's in North Dallas in Prosper, Texas. And we get to enjoy the fruit of his faithful legacy every single week. Like he may be forgotten or not even known and yet we feel his presence in this room. Like I wonder, what legacy did you receive? From friends or family or our mom and dad? What legacy do you want to leave for those who come after you? In Psalm 145.4, the psalmist declares, one generation will commend your works to another and they will tell of your mighty acts. In fact, that's exactly what the whole book of Psalms does. Like as you read through the Psalms, all they're doing is telling the history of Israel over and over and over again in the form of praise and song. Look what God has done. Like they're talking about the legacy of God and what He has done for the nation of Israel. When I was a, a young pastor at Hill Country Bible Church of Austin, I met with one of the elders there who was in the building business and he was actually retired even while, while the time I got there. And one of the guys he knew in business for a long, long years, an older man I think even than him, had gone through the residential and commercial housing crash of the early 80s here in Austin or mid-80s here in Austin and kind of lost everything. Uh, this builder lost everything and had to declare bankruptcy. But he was a believer and so he was deeply burdened by the fact 
that he had declared bankruptcy and left people high and dry. And so he determined as a Christian man, I'm going to pay back everyone. Like every dollar I'm not legally bound to, but I'm going to do it as quickly as possible. And so he set that task before him. And guys, 10 or 15 years later, he did it. Like he paid back every one of those debts. All the debts that he didn't have to pay back, he paid them back 100%. I mean, he left a huge, amazing financial legacy. But in doing so, he lost his marriage. He alienated all his children. He had set such a high priority of keeping his reputation pristine and shiny that it cost him his family. Like he gained one legacy and lost a more significant legacy. I mean, it was honorable that he did that. He could have done it a lot slower and had more time with his kids and had more time with his wife. But he didn't. And it cost him everything. Guys, as we look at what it means to have a legacy, I want to start kind of where we stopped in our last series. In fact, it's 40 years after the events that we studied in Exodus 20. The people of Israel are finally ready to enter into the promised land. You can turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5. God's judgment for Israel's rebellion is complete. And He gives the children of that rebellious generation a second chance to build a new and lasting legacy. Like Moses gives them the law for a second time and He calls for them to respond with a yes and an amen. And He reminds them of that moment 40 years earlier when as children they stood with their moms and dads at the foot of the mountain and heard the voice of God. He says in verse 4, the Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain out of the midst of the fire. Later He'll say, has there ever been a nation, has there ever been a people where God spoke to them out of the fire? Like they were absolutely sure who was talking to them. And this is what God said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before Me. Unrivaled allegiance. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Note that it says visiting the iniquity, not punishing, right? God's not punishing the children because their parents were terrible. Like that's not a judgment from God. The judgment is actually coming from mom and dad. I mean, God is warning, listen, if you disregard me, not only will you suffer, but your kids will suffer. And your grandkids will suffer. And their kids will suffer. And I don't want that for them or for you. I mean, this is simply and sadly the multi-generational consequences of sin and rebellion and disregard of God. And as I taught on this 
sister passage a few weeks ago, I asked the question, like how many of y'all have experienced this yourself? Like you grew up in a home where God's name was only used as a cuss word. You grew up in a home that was moral, but not, not Christian. You grew up in a home that was Christian, but not really. Right? And your life has been forever impacted by your dad leaving your mom, or by adultery, or abuse, or addiction, or divorce. You see, in this passage, God is specifically warning the nation of Israel of the danger of shrinking him down to some kind of a manageable size, making God really all about a day of the week or a location that you go or some kind of practice or habit, like making God simply a couple of moral choices that you make that the families around you don't make. Like He's warning them just in our language of being a nominal Christian. A nominal Christian is somebody who is Christian in name only. Like they'll tell you, they go, yeah, I go to uh, Hutto Bible Church. Really, I go to Hutto Bible Church. Oh, I haven't seen you there. Well, I haven't been in a while. When was the last time you were there? I don't know. Eight or nine uh, years. <laughs> right? Or you go every week, but when you leave the room, everything you've heard, everything you've sung, everything you've been challenged by leaves with you. I just wonder, like, did your parents that you grew up with did they love Jesus? And if your parents love Jesus and they're still alive, you ought to call them today and say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Like, Did your parents love and worship Jesus or did they just go to church? People who just go to church do great damage to the name and fame of Jesus. But if you had a parent who loved Jesus, and worship Jesus, you ought to call him today and say, thank you so much for setting that example for me. Because apathy and spiritual indifference, guys, is contagious. It spreads from one generation to another. Is that fair? No. Is it true? Absolutely. But here's something else that is true. It says that the iniquity of the fathers... Uh, uh, will be visited on their children to the third and fourth generation, but God will show steadfast love to thousands of those who love Me and keep My commandments. Like right there, God just boils it down. This is what I'm looking for. Love Me and keep My commandments. Passionate obedience. Like I wonder how many of y'all experienced that growing up? How many of y'all had a mom or a dad that their lives was marked by passionate obedience? How many of y'all would like to see like, like your children and your grandchildren, and if you live long enough, your great-grandchildren blessed because of the faithfulness that God is rewarding in you? Because that's what this passage is talking about. This is how a legacy is built. Love me and keep my commandments. Like, I remember sitting in a class at Columbia Bible College like, like forever ago, like 36 years ago, 37 years ago, where the professor said of this passage that what it's saying is that first, God works in the hearts of parents. And as, as a result, this has a profound natural 
but not supernatural effect on the kids. Like it's powerful to grow up in a Christian home with a mom and dad who are the real deal who love Jesus. But it doesn't guarantee that you're saved. Like I've said a hundred times from up here, going to church or having Christian parents doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Right? Like you need to have your own moment where you surrender your life to Christ. But it does. It God first works in the hearts of the parents and it has a profound natural effect on the kids. But if God's work is rejected by the parents, it has a devastating natural effect on the kids. Not supernatural. Those kids aren't damned because their parents aren't Christians. They have a choice to make for themselves. Like I can just tell you, because of the generational sin I saw growing up, that's one reason I waited until I was 28 to get married. Because I was afraid. Like I, I didn't want to I didn't want to continue the Pruitt family legacy of disregard of God and just utter selfishness and addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol or whatever. I was afraid I was going to fall down that same rabbit hole that every one of my siblings fell down. And so I waited till I was 28 because I didn't know, like I didn't even know what a Christian family was supposed to look like. I didn't know what a Christian marriage was supposed to look like. I didn't know where to start until once again, I sat in that class at Columbia and the professor got up and kind of gave us a, a definition of what we should be hoping and praying for in our family. And he said this, that the hope of our parenting is to raise children who live not unto themselves, but unto Christ. Like Dr. Buck Hatch got up in front of the class and shared those words. And like, I don't know about you, but my, my vision of what a family could be expanded. Like the hope. Like what I'm praying for, what I'm longing for more than anything and what you as a Christian parent should hope and pray for more than anything is that your kids would live not unto themselves, but unto the One who died for them and rose again. Like we're not about simply producing good moral church kids. Good students, great athletes, strong businessmen. Like it's more than just wanting them to have a happy family. We want them to know and love Jesus and live for Him. And guys, if, if, your, if your view of parenting does not have this as its hope, it is biblically deficient. Like this is what we should long for. This is what we should hope for. And yet, we need to understand that we're limited. Kids growing up in our home, seeing us love and live for Jesus, it has a profound natural effect on them, but it doesn't make them Christians. Like this is our hope but it's not our goal. You see, a hope is something like, you know, you buy a lottery ticket and you hope you're going to win, right? Your goal really isn't to win because you can't control that. A goal is something that you set for yourself. I want to lose this much weight. I want to exercise this many times a week. I want to read this many books this year. That's a goal. A hope is I want to win this lottery. Lord, let me win the lottery. Guys, our hope is that our kids would love Jesus and live for Him. But our goal is simply this. The goal of parenting is faithfulness. Because that's all I can do. 
I mean, that's all I can do is be faithful. All I can do is say yes. All I can do is draw a circle around Bobby and focus on this guy doing the right things. I can't guarantee the heart change in the life of my kids. That's, that's beyond my pay grade. But I long to hear one day from my Savior in regard to my parenting, well done, good and faithful servant. Not well done, good and fruitful servant. You know, way to go. Your kids are all Christians and they're so awesome and their grandkids are Christians and so on and so on and so on. No, God did all of that. And if my kids know and love Jesus, God did that. I just need to be faithful and trust Him with the results. Biblical parenting as a result means I get no guilt if my kids go off course, but I get no glory if they become the next Billy Graham. And there's also no guarantees. And for some people, that's not good news because they want to come to a series on parenting and family and get some guarantees. Give me four things I need to do and guaranteed that my kids would be awesome. And yet we all know parents who are awesome, whose kids are just a train wreck. And then we all know kids who are awesome, whose parents are a train wreck. Like guys, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. But God supernaturally worked in my heart and changed me to be the dad and the husband that I am. Like God did that. Not Charlie and Norma. God did. And He can move in your life as well. He can do what, like I look at this illustration around legacy. You see the circles around it? He can do this in your life. Because that's what this passage is talking about. It's talking about ripples. Like in a pond. Like if you go to a pond and you drop a little stone in the pond, it, you're going to see a few ripples that go out. See, that's what God is saying. In the household that disregards me, you drop that stone in the pond and there are ripples going out from that household and it's affecting this generation and this generation and this generation. Now, if you drop a boulder in that same pond, there's going to be a big splash and the ripples are going to go all the way to the edge. And God is saying, hey, what do you want? Do you want to see what you alone can do with your unfaithfulness because it's going to be bad? Or do you, what, do you want to see what I can do with your faithfulness? See, God adds weight really to not the boulder of our faithfulness, but just the little stone. Like we don't have a lot to offer, but we drop that little pebble and God adds weight to it so that when it hits the water, there is a great splash and there are ripples and ripples and ripples to a thousand generations. That's what God does when we're faithful. Faithful to what? And I'll bring it up here really quick. We'll hit on these in coming weeks, but not a lot. These are the four biblical responsibilities of a parent. We're to love our kids. We're to build wisdom into our kids. We're to discipline them. And we need to train them for independence from us. Our, our goal as parents is to shape our kids while we have them and then launch them into life in the hope that they will be faithful to God. That's what we're trying to do. But the good news is, no matter where you are in your parenting, it's never too late 
to start being faithful. If you've done none of this, if this is brand new to you, but you want to be faithful, today can be the first day of your faithfulness. You can start fresh now because with the ripple effect, God can do more with the life you have left than you were able to do with all the years that went before. It really comes down to whose legacy do you want to build? Yours or His? Whose name do you want to make much of? Yours or His? So where do we start? With these words at the end of the giving of the law from chapter 6 in Deuteronomy verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. See, the first thing we need to do is say, God, I don't know if my kids are going to obey, but I'm going to obey. I don't know if my kids are going to love you, but I'm going to love you. Like these words that I command you today are to be on your heart and then you can teach them to your kids and impress on them the importance of following God. Like we are to communicate through the normal rhythms of our life that ultimately the pleasure of God is the supreme value in our family. Like is there more anything more important to you than that God is pleased dads as you with a, as a dad? Is there anything more important than that? Is it more important to have the friendship of your kids or the friendship of God? The approval of your wife or husband or the approval of God? Like We're supposed to communicate, and this is Christian parenting, through the normal rhythms of our life when we lie down and when we get up when we walk along the way, that making God happy with our lives is the most important thing. Hear plus obey plus love plus teach equals faithfulness. Like we need to love God, love our kids, and then love God in front of our kids. We need to fill our home and fill our lives with the presence of God. It's never too late to be a Jesus freak. Right? I mean, it's never too late. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. It's never too late to start fresh. It's never too late. Like your kids, can I just tell you, your kids need to see you as a Jesus freak. Your, your kids need to think, something's wrong with dad, man. He's, he's a little, he's taking this a little too seriously. You know, I don't, I, you know, mom, like she's like sticking Bible verses on everything. I can't even go to the bathroom and close the door without scripture being right there. What is going on with my family? Like your kids need to see that. In fact, my kids recently, we, I asked my kids, uh, in, in preparation for writing an article on, you know, pastors raising kids, <laughs> I asked them, like, what are some of the things we did wrong and what are the same things we did right? One of the things we did right, there were a few, like one, uh, but, uh, one of the things we did right is they said, you always told us and you never wavered that loving Jesus was the most important thing. And that's all that mattered. Like they heard that so many times from their mom, so many times from their dad. Listen, sure, I'd like you to, you know, 
make good grades and graduate, that would be, that's a plus. I'd like you to get a job and move out of our house. We would like that. But really, honestly, the most important thing, all that matters to us, and I mean that, all that matters to us, everything else matters so much less than this that it's not even on the map. All that matters is that you know Jesus and that you love Him. That's all that matters. And can I just tell you, as a grandpa, that's all that matters. That my grandkids would know and love Jesus. Certainly, it would be great if they went to a good school and had a job. But that is so secondary that it doesn't even make the list. We need to let for our kids, let our light so shine before them that they're able to connect the dot between how we live and who we love. They need to know, oh, Dad's doing this because of Jesus. We need to pray for them. We need to pray over them. We need to pray with them. We need to let them see the example of passionate obedience. Like we need to, we need to gather an army of other men and women who love Jesus around them so that they can see, oh, this is what faithfulness looks like at 35 and at 45 and at 55 and at 85. This is what it looks like if you're this kind of person from this ba- background, and this is what it looks like if you're this kind of person from this background. Like as I asked my kids, what are some of the things that like helped you like drive that spiritual stake in the ground? Can I just tell you? Like, because he's right there. Sean Chandler. They they all said, so thankful for Sean Chandler. Because he made church fun. <laughs> like, and he taught the word passionately. So thankful for a partner in the gospel like Sean, who invested in my kids. Do you have people like that? Like, guys, you do in your church. You need to get behind them and support them and love them. We need to talk about God's word with our kids, with our grandkids, because the Bible has something to say about everything. Like, let me just tell you, there's a myth going on in our culture. I call it the myth of quality time. We tell ourselves, you know what? I'm super busy. I don't have a lot of time with my kids, but when I'm with them, it's quality time. (laughs) There's no such thing as quality time. You can't plan quality time. For most people's quality time is, you know, I'm scrolling while I'm looking up at you every once in a while. No, quality time is something that happens by accident in the midst of giant swaths of quantity time. Like we need to put our phones away, our tablets away, and play with our kids and be with our kids and love our kids. And sometime accidentally in the midst of that, Something good is going to happen. But you can't plan for that. Just be a follower of Christ with your kids. And then hopefully when your son asks in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you'll be able to say to your son, well, this is why. Like we should be living our lives in such a way that our sons and daughters are asking, what's up with that? Like, why do you live like this? Why do you make these sacrifices? Why is Jesus such a big deal to you? I don't know about you. I've said this before during the Awakening series. I want to leave our church better than I found it. 
I want to leave the name Pruitt better than I found it. I want to build a legacy not for my name, but for His name and for His fame. A legacy of passionate obedience. Because parenting is a lot more than just having well-behaved kids. Like the hope of parenting is to raise children who live not unto themselves, but unto the Lord. And even though it's not my goal because I can't accomplish it, I so long for my three kids to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But I have no ability whatsoever to change them. And if I did, Jesus would be unnecessary. Like we need the Holy Spirit to add weight to our faithfulness. And so maybe you are struggling as a parent because you've assigned yourself a job that you cannot do. Paul Tripp explains it this way. This is a long quote, but I'll close with this and then a story. Paul Tripp writes, if as a parent you think that you have the power, uh, you have power that you don't have, you will do things that you should not do or you will fail to do things that you that are vital to do. When you think your job is to change your child and you've been given the power to do it, your parenting will tend to be demanding, aggressive, threatening, and focused on rules and punishments. In this kind of parenting, you are working to make your child into something rather than, to, than working to help them see something and seek something. In this form of parenting, it's all about you and your children rather than you being an agent of what only God can do in your children. Your hope is that you will exercise the right power at the right time and in the right way so change in your children will result. That process is profoundly different than working to be a useful tool in the hands of a God of glorious, transforming grace who alone is your hope and the hope of your children. Here's the bottom line for every parent. The change that has to happen in each of your children, you can't create. In fact, nowhere in His Word has God tasked you with the responsibility to create it. Good parenting is about becoming okay with the fact that you are powerless to change your child. In fact, good parenting is about celebrating the fact that God has never and will never put the burden of change on you. Because changing your children is a burden that we could never bear. God bore that burden for us by sending His Son to be the author of lasting personal change. The burden that caused His death liberates us parents and gives new life to our children. Now that's good news. So our job is simple. It's not to create change, but to be humble and willing instruments of change in the hands of the one and only author of change. And guys, here it is. It's never too late to be a tool of grace in the hand of God. And it's never too late. And failure is not the last word. Like your failure as a parent does not get the last word. Like I was reading, as I'm reading through the Old Testament, one of the stories that kind of struck me, especially in connection with the Psalms, was the story from number 16 about a Israelite, a Levite named Korah. 
Korah was a Levite, served in the house of God, and rebelled against the leadership of Moses because in his pride, he was consumed with making a name for himself. How come only Aaron and Moses get to talk to God directly? Like, who do they think they are? I I should be up there too. Like, he was consumed with making a name for himself, with building his legacy. And as a result, God brought swift and devastating judgment on him and all of those who followed him. It's a horrific story from Numbers 16. But guys, once again, failure doesn't get the last word. God does. And we read in the Psalms about 500 years later, we read about a different legacy that bears that name, Korah. The same person, the same name, and we see what God does with His ripple effect. When somebody comes with simple light, like just entry-level obedience and faithfulness, we read Psalm 44, a psalm of the sons of Korah, the rebel against God. We have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what You did in in their days. In days long ago, With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my King and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through You, we push back our enemies. Through Your name, we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But You give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to shame. In God, we make our boast all day long. And we will praise Your name forever. The sons of Korah. Failure doesn't get the final word. God does. The ripple effect. God brings weight to your faithfulness and spreads out the ripples to a thousand generations. Let's pray. God, we thank You that uh, this table represents, in a sense, a very real sense, the ripple effect we're talking about. One moment of faithfulness. On the cross, Your Son bore our sin. He died and rose again. And in His faithfulness, Lord, we see the ripples spreading out through our church and through our city, through our nation and among all the peoples of the earth to the point where men and women from every tribe and nation and people will stand before You one day singing, worthy is the Lamb. Lord, You did that. We long for it. We pray for it. We hope we hope for it. But God, You do it. And Lord, we pray that You would do it again and again and again. Bless now this time of communion with You. May these elements be true food and true drink for our souls. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.